0: We read scripture this evening from First Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2. We read the chapter taking as our text verses 4 through 8. We hear the inspired infallible word of God. Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies, And all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted, that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were, we, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is taken from verses 4 through 8. To whom coming as unto the living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle opens this section with an implied contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They had a house of God. We are the house of God. Their temple was built of dead stones. Our temple is built of spiritual living stones. They approached God through priests. We approach God as ourselves, the priesthood. They offered up material sacrifices. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. That contrast is established here as the apostle speaks of God's people as living stones offering up spiritual sacrifices. As those who find their life in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Now, Peter uses very familiar terminology when he talks about Jesus as the cornerstone. One of the first things that a builder needed if he was to construct a building was to find a good, solid rock that could serve as the cornerstone. There were times when stones would be cut off the summit of Mount Zion. Remember Mount Zion built on the rocks... So to speak, sometimes a stone would be taken from the summit and brought into the city, but it wouldn't fit in the current building. And so that stone would be set aside, weeds would grow around it, and pretty soon someone else would come around needing a stone for a new building. The stone that the builders refused initially would now become the headstone, the cornerstone of the new structure. That's the analogy that's being used here with regard to Christ. Now the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah, and many other portions in the New Testament express this idea of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. He would be the stone who, according to Daniel, would be cut out of the mountain without hands. He was the stone who, according to Isaiah, would be laid in Zion as her foundation. According to Psalm 118, verse 22, a passage that we referenced early on in the worship service, he would be the headstone of the corner. As the cornerstone, Jesus Christ is the one upon whom his people trust. He's the one in whom we find our confidence, the one in whom is found our life. At the same time, he's the one over which the wicked stumble. They trip to their own destruction. We look this evening at Zion's cornerstone, noting first of all that he was sovereignly fashioned. God ordained Christ as the cornerstone. Secondly, the spiritual sacrifices that those living stones show forth. And finally, the fact that he is to us exceeding precious. A chief cornerstone we read in verse 6. In verse 7 we read the stone... The emphasis of the Holy Scriptures in this passage is on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. There are many other themes in these preceding verses. Some have claimed the theme of a spiritual priesthood really is more on the foreground. And there's no doubt that that is a theme that's running through these passages. But that which is central is the spiritual wonder of Jesus Christ as cornerstone. And that's evident from the passages that are quoted here. Christ is the one who's connected with the other stones. And His connection is such that He gives life to those stones. He's the one who's first in God's counsel. The one for whom and by whom all things were created. He's the sure, everlasting foundation of Zion. This passage deals then with Christ. That great stone, the elect of God. And it treats our relationship to Christ as that stone. It treats the stone's effect on us as well as on those who reject it. Now Peter begins in verse 6 with, Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. He does that in order to let the Old Testament passage speak for themselves and to establish the significant role that Jesus Christ occupies in his church. A role that already has been laid out and determined from the Old Testament. And so as we look through this passage, verse 6 is a quote from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone a sure foundation he that believeth shall not make haste verse 7 is a quote from psalm 118 verse 22 the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner and then verse 8 is a quote from isaiah 8 verse 14 and he shall be for a sanctuary before a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of israel for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, why does Peter provide those quotes? And why is it that he goes into the Old Testament in order to lay this out concerning Christ? The occasion for this is very practical, and it's something that we also need to hear. The saints during Peter's time were facing tremendous mockery and ridicule from even those who were so-called Christians. Mocking them, ridiculing them about Christ. Mocking them for the sake that Christ hadn't yet returned. Christ had said when he went up that he would come back again. Where is he re- his return? And later on, Peter is going to specifically address those mockers, those scoffers. The saints were fe- hearing tremendous blasphemy and tremendous contempt from those who did not share with them the joy of salvation. These people were mocking. They were persecuting them severely. So that we've read and noted the persecution that these saints were enduring. As they found themselves strangers and pilgrims, they were facing opposition, persecution that was intense. These oppositions and these threats threatened to shake their faith. Is Jesus real? Is Jesus really their Savior? Is their faith true? Or is it the fact that He's forsaken them? He's really not going to return again? These were real struggles that could bring the saints into bondage. Hence, Peter reminds the saints, what you're hearing and what you're experiencing and the opposition that's taking place, this has all already been prophesied in the Old Testament. This is a confirmation that Jesus Christ is truly your Savior and your Lord. This is something that was foretold concerning Him. The contempt of Jesus that you witness and that you see around you must not move you from faith. As a matter of fact, it ought to confirm your faith because you realize the fact that this is precisely what was prophesied, that Jesus would be rejected, that he would be a stone of stumbling. Sometimes, beloved, we see the unbelief and the opposition that comes against the truth of the Scriptures, and we're baffled. We think, how could anyone think that way? Where are they coming from? Beloved, we ought not be so shocked, so baffled. We realize this also is that which is ordained. It's a reminder to humility. We've done nothing to make ourselves better than anyone else. Why is it that we by faith lay hold on Him? And why is it that others stumble? God's grace is the only difference. And so rather than pride, it reminds us of who we are of ourselves and the humility that's necessary as we stand before God the living God. Now a chief cornerstone was something that would be extremely carefully chosen. If you were a builder, it was the cornerstone or the foundation that would determine the whole nature of the structure. If you started with a small stone, you'd only be able to build a small structure. If you had a large stone, you could build a larger structure. If your stone was crooked a bit, It's going to determine the whole nature of the structure. You're going to be struggling against it the whole time because it's not straight. So that you needed the precise stone that would be pertinent to the structure that was being built. One cannot build a building that's larger than its foundation. The size of the foundation is going to determine the size of the structure. And so... Notice from the quotes here. We're talking here about a cornerstone, but also a foundation. Isaiah 8 verse 14 talks about Jesus as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But Isaiah 28 talks about the fact that He is so as a foundation stone. So there's a close relationship between the cornerstone and the foundation stone. In some places they're identified as one with the other so that there's no doubt of the closeness of the relationship and the fact that these stones would dictate the character and nature of the entire building now jesus was chosen by god to be the chief cornerstone that analogy is sometimes misunderstood it said that Jesus is the chief cornerstone in the sense that he takes the walls of the Jews and the walls of the Gentiles and now he brings them together. Now it's true that Jesus does that, but that's not the idea here of the figure of the cornerstone or the foundation here. It said that the whole house is held together or it's carried by the cornerstone. Or that the cornerstone would be the first one that's laid at the bottom, and therefore the whole church is flows out of Christ. Again, truth to that. But there's far more here that's at stake. The cornerstone, again, was the most significant stone of the structure. And it's this stone that determined the whole rest of the building. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He determines the whole rest of the building of the church. He determines the size of the church. He determines the faithfulness of the church. He's the one that determines every aspect of the church. Now sometimes we place cornerstones in buildings just purely for ceremonial purposes. And it's important to note that's not what's being talked about here. Sometimes we have stones in the building of the church that identify the year that it was constructed. Those stones can be pulled out, put back in, with no impact to the building, to the structure. They're merely superficial stones. Jesus Christ is no superficial stone. He is the cornerstone. And so biblically, what this means is that Jesus Christ determines the whole nature and character of his church. It means that the church then is a spiritual body because Jesus Christ is spiritual. The size of the church is the body of the elect as determined by Jesus Christ. The stability of the church is such that this church is an everlasting church. It's eternal, even as Christ is eternal. Everything is determined by the cornerstone, the foundation. And beloved, the picture here then is beautiful. Jesus Christ is at the heart of the church. The church is built on him. He is the one who establishes the church. He's the one who determines the nature, the character, and He's the one who preserves and keeps that church. Very practically, for you and me, it means Jesus Christ is the only foundation of your life. There's nothing else in this world that's stable. There's nothing else in this world that's sure. Christ governs the nature of your life. He's the one that gives significance to your life. He's the one upon whom you lean Knowing and believing that you will not be ashamed. You will not be disappointed. In that regard, Christ is no artificial cornerstone. Sometimes we live like that, don't we? We lean on Christ when we need to. We don't build our life on Him. We don't view Him as the one that's necessary for living. But we use Him when it's convenient. We try to align Christ sometimes to our lives so that we're not aligning our lives to Christ, but we're trying to change Christ to adapt to the Christ that we desire and the life that we want to live. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one who dictates the whole of our living and the whole of the church. He was sovereignly chosen by God to be that cornerstone. From eternity, God ordained that Jesus Christ would be the cornerstone. The elect. Literally picked out and chosen by Jehovah God. In that sense, we talk about Christ being before all things. He's the one who existed before even this world was created. In the council of God. There was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God already ordaining that in Jesus Christ, He would establish a people. And through Jesus Christ, He would establish His church. So that there's no election apart from Christ. Christ is the one in whom all of the elect are found. And God's choice was perfect. God's choice was sovereign to ordain Jesus Christ as the head of His church. The one who would govern and dictate every aspect of his church. And the one through whom his church would be saved and delivered. He was chosen, according to Isaiah 42 verse 1, as the elect. Christ was elected and in him are found all those whom God has chosen. God gives them to Christ and Christ is the one now that performs the wonder and the marvelous sacrifice necessary to bring them into the glory and wonder of this spiritual tabernacle. the spiritual temple. Jesus was carefully fashioned in order to be prepared for this position. He learned obedience. He became a servant, humbling himself unto death. And that's emphasized here when we read, Behold, I lay in Zion. In verse 6, God sovereignly laid Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. He was rejected by the builders of Israel, the stone which the builders disallowed. Before the stone was even set in place in time through the death of Jesus Christ, the unbelieving Jews rejected it. Now that again had been prophesied in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now David uses there also the metaphor of building. When he talks about builders, he's talking about the spiritual, the political government those individuals appointed by God within the church. And as builders, they were not builders because they built rightly, but as leaders of the church, they had the responsibility to govern. They governed. They saw Jesus. He was born. He ministered in their midst. He walked among them. They tested Him. They listened to Him. They heard Him out. And they determined that He was worthless for the building that they desired to create. They did not want a church that would be based on and built on Jesus Christ. They desired to build an altogether different building. They wanted a building that was earthly, not spiritual. They wanted a building that would involve all men, not just some They established the church, they established their lives on the basis of their own works, their own accomplishments. And therefore, they built then on the sinking sand of man and man's desires. Christ was despised. He was rejected. He was considered worthless. They mocked him. They spit at him. They derided him and they seemingly destroyed that precious stone. All these great men, who were so proud of their power, so proud of their ability, however, could not dislocate Christ established by God. Behold, I lay in Zion. These men rejected Him. They refused Him. But Jehovah God placed Christ as the head of the corner. The builder of Israel. The rejection of the evil builders was sovereignly ordained and used by God to work the very establishment in time of that stone. Now if we think about that, how practically was Jesus established as the headstone of the corner, especially through the crucifixion and death of our Savior, as he in that way established his church, as he gave his people the right to be citizens of, Of that glorious body. The wicked rulers. Rejected him. They despised him. They thought they were doing away with him. By murdering him. But God used their wickedness rather. To establish. His sovereign will. In laying that cornerstone. That through his death. Atonement would be realized. And through his death. The church would be established. And no one else could lay that foundation which would determine the character and the nature of the church no one else had the power the authority to do it god would do so and none would overcome god's sovereign rule not even the powers of sin and the devil the stone could not be done away with because it was unique it was a living cornerstone now that fact alerts us to the wonder that Jehovah God was laying this cornerstone from all eternity. The revelation of this cornerstone took place right away after the fall when God came to Adam and Eve in their sin and pledged a Savior, a Redeemer. Through the Old Testament, more of the wonder of that cornerstone was revealed through the promises given after the flood. The creation covenant with Noah. Yet more with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God spoke of the seed and the coming of the seed and what he would accomplish. God made known he would raise living stones out of Christ who would be as the sand of the seashore, as the stars in heaven without capability of being numbered. The tabernacle, the temple later were shadows of this holy place where Christ would establish perfection through His blood. And all the sacrifices, all the feasts, they all pointed as pictures of this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world in time. He humbled Himself as a man unto the death of the cross. He suffered. He died. He destroyed the power of death and hell. And He gained for us forgiveness and life and all the blessings of salvation. He did not remain in the grave, but He rose again on the third day. He ascended up into heaven and He overthrew the bondage. He overthrew the dominion of death and He established victory and life and hope for the church to all eternity. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. God's choice for His church was Jesus Christ. The church would be established, preserved, and kept through Jesus Christ. The sovereign elect of the church could never be confounded. Despite the opposition of men, despite the very gates of hell being directed against him, Jehovah marvelously set his own son as the protection of his church. God laid Christ in Zion. Jesus wasn't established as the cornerstone for the whole world. He was not laid as the cornerstone for the Israelites as a nation. He was not laid to to determine the character and nature of the whole world or specific countries. God established Christ as the cornerstone of Zion to establish and determine... The character of his church. The church is built on and governed by Christ. And the truth that Christ is the Son of the living God. This is the confession of Peter. In Matthew 16 verses 16 to 18, we have that difficulty taking place there as the apostles stood before this reality again. Men were forsaking Jesus. They were turning their back on him. And so Jesus finally confronts the disciples and says, What are you going to do? Whom do you think I am? And that's when we hear the confession of Peter. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that passage is used by the Roman Catholic Church to try to establish Peter as that rock. Peter as the one who then is the Pope, they say. The first Pope. But grammatically, rock here is not in the masculine sense. If it were, then it would be the antecedent for Peter. Rather, it's in what we would call the neuter sense. So that the antecedent then can't be Peter. Rather, it's Christ. So that it refers to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is the rock then? The rock is that confession that Christ is the living, that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says, Peter, on that rock, that rock of Jesus Christ, that confession concerning Him as the Son of the living God, That's the foundation on which the church is established. And each of us then are elect stones in the church, resting in and finding our life source in Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. That's the emphasis that is made here in the beginning verses. In verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. We note, secondly here, the spiritual sacrifices. The structure of the church that's established by Christ is not a lifeless structure of wood and stone. It's a living temple. And the principle of its life is Christ, who died and rose again, conquering the powers of death and sin. His life is a heavenly life. It's an everlasting life. It's a life of fellowship and communion with God that knows no end. On that living cornerstone is the whole living temple built. Christ, the principal source of life. Life flows out of Him. Now, beloved, this is marvelous then, so that we then, as we live out of Christ are stones that are living stones. And even more marvelous, nothing can take away that life. Though we die, yet we shall live. This is a life that's everlasting. It's a life that's eternal. Beloved, here is your value and your worth. You are living stones who are given your life out of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And as living stones, we're not passive. We're active as thinking, willing creatures in connection with that cornerstone. We hear the call, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And we come, powerfully drawn by the irresistible grace of Jehovah God. This is God's wonder work. We come as those who desire and long To live out of Christ by faith. And to show forth our praise to Him. We come again and again to Christ. We're sinful. We fall into sin. We separate ourselves from Christ. God works in us repentance. We cry out for mercy. He restores again. And through the power of the preaching, we forsake our sin. We repent. We flee to the cross. And we know the wonder of forgiveness. But here's the marvelous wonder of this text. We are permanently fixed to Christ. The stones can never be broken out of their place. God preserves and keeps every stone by the power of His gracious preservation. None of God's elect can lose their salvation. None can lose their place in Christ. As Lively stones are built up a spiritual house. God has taken every one of his children and he brings them as individual members of Christ and he places them in their respective place in that glorious church. Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, living together with God in Jesus Christ in glorious unity and fellowship. He shapes each individual member, gives each individual their unique and alone place as living members of that glorious body. Now of ourselves, we look at ourselves and we say, I'm useless. What value would there be for me as part of this glorious, wondrous temple, this living temple? I'm a filthy rag. All my good works are worthless, they're only worthy of being burned up, being cast in a fire. And yet God takes us, He transforms and He makes us as beautiful gems fit for this glorious temple, fashioning and forming each to occupy his or her unique place and using all the experiences of life, all the trials, all the struggles to fit us for that ordained place in His glorious temple what a wonder beloved again herein is our value my value my worth and yours is not what you've accomplished on earth what you're able to do not whether you're married or have children your value your worth is found in the fact that you are living stones connected to jesus christ and made then in holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This holy priesthood here is the glorious goal of God in the work of building this spiritual house. The house and the priesthood are identified. In the Old Testament, God could not dwell in the same room with his people. Remember that God dwelt in a figurative sense in the holy of holies. And no one could enter into there except a priest once a year to put blood on the mercy seat. The priest had to stand between God and the people. The blood of atonement had to be sprinkled because it had not yet been shed. Christ, the high priest, made the perfect sacrifice. He took his blood into heaven. And by his spirit in the hearts of his children, he makes us his priesthood. And what's the result? We sacrifice. Priests sacrifice. We sacrifice not with atoning sacrifices. That sacrifice has already been made, there's no more need for atonement. But we bring spiritual sacrifices. And what does that mean? Instead of living for self, you live for God. You're willing to turn your back on the things that you want, the things that you desire the things that are important to you, and now you instead say, thy will be done. You pursue the things that God wants and the things that God desires. You're living for God. You're living for His glory. Romans 12 verse 1 identifies this life of sacrifice. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service we live for God in humble service and praise to him and God delights in these sacrifices because they're his work now what's remarkable is the fact that these sacrifices are imperfect because of our sinful natures yet God receives them and rejoices in them in Jesus Christ they're perfected through the spirit by the wonder of our heavenly high priest. The Spirit working them, Jesus Christ perfecting them. And God taking us then into covenant love with Himself so that we enjoy His presence. We live in His house. We show forth His praise. And we now bring these spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving before Him daily. We know there are no conditions in the covenant But there are requirements, there are commands in the covenant. God requires sacrifices. God gives the power to believe. He also gives the power to perform the sacrifice. The fact that the power comes from God does not deny the reality of the sacrifice. Now we deal here with a mystery, do we not? How can faith and obedience be at the same time God's work in man And also, man's act. How can the command to believe be genuine when God's the one who's the author of faith? These are questions that swirl in our mind that defy our understanding. And the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty swirl. How can we bring them together? Both are real. We confess it takes a mind of God's to be able to comprehend and understand how both can be true. Our minds are earthly. They're finite. But God reveals these wonders to us, not so that we're troubled, not so that we're vexed by our inability to understand, but that we glorify Him, that we honor Him, that we go forward by faith, sacrificing of ourselves, giving up friends, giving up families at times. For Christ's sake, Forsaking pleasures, forsaking treasures for Christ's sake. Living not for self, but living for God and for His glory. And God receives such sacrifice with pleasure, with approval. He delights in them. They're acceptable to Him because they're the fruit of His work in our lives. Living stones, bringing forth spiritual sacrifices... Now we'll get into that more, Lord willing, in the next section, which identifies the wonder that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the wondrous fruit of God's Word. Christ, the cornerstone out of which we live. Christ the cornerstone, exceedingly precious. But not to those that be disobedient, according to our text. The disobedient are those who stumble at the Word. They stumble at the Word by being unwilling to obey it. They will have nothing of Christ, nothing of His Word. They refuse to obey His will. They want nothing of His Lordship in their life, nothing of submitting to Him and His will in their life. This is the truth, beloved, of reprobation, Set forth here in our text. The text plainly teaches that God appointed some. Verse 8. Whereunto also they were appointed to disobedience and stumbling. They set themselves over against the word of God. They placed themselves above that word. Now we know the Jews were guilty of this. They stumbled at the word that Jesus came with. They professed themselves willing to receive the Messiah, but then when the Messiah came, they rejected him because he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. They wanted an earthly leader. They wanted one who would solve earthly problems. He was spiritual. Now, all those who do not receive Christ as Christ revealed in the gospel are adversaries of God. They're adversaries of his word. Often they're not that blatant in their rejection, are they? Often they're more subtle. They submit Christ to a test and they determine they don't want the Christ of the Bible. And so they switch Christ. They move Him. They change Him a bit. They determine the Christ that would fit their desires and their demands. They want a Christ who would permit them to walk openly in sin. Not a Christ who would forbid Sin and would condemn sin. They want a Christ who doesn't require of them repentance and turning. They find Christ unacceptable. And so they reject him. Unbelief is simply disobedient in doctrine and in life to the Word of God. They find the stone worthless to them and they cast it out in rebellion. Rather than submitting to Christ as cornerstone, rather than seeing their value and worth in Him, they place themselves above the cornerstone. And in essence, they place themselves as the cornerstone of their lives. They're the ones who are going to determine the trajectory of their life. They're going to determine the nature of their life, the character of their life. They build on the basis of their own pride, their own accomplishments. The terrible vengeance of God is poured out on those who reject Christ as cornerstone. To these we read, Christ has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The idea there is this, the firmness and the stability of Christ is such that it will sustain everyone who trusts in him, everyone who depends in him by faith. But that hardness is also so great that it will break and tear in pieces everyone who opposes him. In order to emphasize the destruction that will come upon unbelievers, Peter uses a double designation here from Isaiah 8 verse 14. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He uses both, a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And then continuing, for a jinn and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The reference there isn't just a mild tripping and falling the force of the wording is such that it refers to a striking with the whole body against the rock with such force that it kills them so angry they are that they oppose him and they come at him with all of their energy to their own destruction christ is a stone that's immovable he's a rock that is sure He's steadfast. He's the great cornerstone. And against it then, unbelief and unbelievers are shattered in pieces. They break their necks over Christ. They rush off to hell in their opposition to him. Now unbelievers come into contact with Christ in many different ways. Through the creation, they know that there is a God according to Romans 1 and Romans 2. They know that he's worthy of praise and that they have to worship him. They refuse to do it and are held, therefore, without excuse. But they also come into contact with Christ through his word. And they stumble and they fall in their response to the word and to the preaching. It's not the fault of Christ that they stumble. Because of unbelief, they stumble. They refuse to believe. We expect such unbelief also in the realm of the church. And that's what the saints had to be prepared for. This is going to happen. There's going to be opposition. You're going to expect that because of the nature of who Christ is and what God has ordained. And by opposing the word and by opposing Christ, they place themselves under the crushing wrath of God. Pray for such that they repent, that they turn. This is according to the sovereign appointment of God. And this passage is teaching clearly that God is sovereign over all things, including the rejection of Christ and the stumbling of the wicked. God doesn't lay this stone in Zion with the hope and intent that everyone is going to deem it as precious, that all will flock after and believe on him. If that were so, God would have worded this very differently. But God is God, and therefore what the saints saw happening around them is according to God's sovereign ordering. What we see happening in the world about us is according to God's sovereign ordering. There will be unbelief. There will be rejection. God lays that stone in Zion in order to accomplish His good pleasure. The election of His people, which is in the way of the reprobation of the wicked. The salvation of the elect accomplished in the way of reprobation, the suffering, the persecution that comes upon God's people. In other words, the decree of reprobation serves the decree of election. Does that rejection, does that opposition defeat the church? Does it destroy the Christ? No, not at all. God appointed also this. Now, beloved, this is a hard doctrine. By faith, we lay hold on it as the teaching of Scripture. The world about us proclaims it's scandalous. You're making God the author of sin. This is a horrible doctrine, they say. You're denying human responsibility. Beloved, if God did not reprobate, God did not elect. He didn't choose. Always in the Bible, election and reprobation are set together. We have Jacob and Esau, Cain, And Abel, we have all through the history of the Scriptures, God choosing to Himself a people in the way of the reprobation of others. God is sovereign, and that sovereignty is evident also in this. We don't rise up and pretend to be wiser than God. We heed the admonition of Romans 9. Who art thou, O man, who replyest against God? As the clay, are you going to take issue with the potter? But beloved, we rejoice in this wonder. God works in our hearts the faith by which we deem Christ as precious. He works in us belief. To those which believe, He is precious. The preciousness of Jesus Christ is on the foreground. And the wonder of God's grace in working that in your and my heart's. We have been blessed with the gift of faith and we are able to lay hold upon that chief cornerstone and we confess this one is my Lord and he's my Savior. I embrace him as the foundation of my life. He's the one for whom I live. He's the one out of whom the whole of my life flows. He was chosen by God as honorable, valuable, exceeding precious and he's the one for whom I live and on whom I depend. He's not just there for show. He's not just in my life like an ornament that I hang in my house or around my neck. He's the very foundation of my life. He's the one out of whom I live. He's the one in whom I have my being. And how do I show that, beloved? How do you show that? You graduate from grade school, from high school, from college. How do you show Christ is the foundation of your life. Are you seeking His will? Are you pursuing the things of His kingdom? Are you running after yourself and mammon and the things this world has to offer? What is the trajectory of your life? What is the direction of your life? Beloved, by faith we confess Christ. The direction of my life is for the glory and honor of Jehovah in Jesus Christ. And by faith we confess the excellency of Christ. We see that our salvation is sure in Him. My salvation is certain in Him. I am safe and secure in Christ. I look at myself and I see how weak I am, how sinful I am. But I look at Christ and I know that in Him and in His faithfulness, all will be well. In that cornerstone we find forgiveness. In that cornerstone we find The blessed assurance of peace, everlasting peace with God. And the more we come into contact with Christ as that cornerstone, the more amazed we are with the precious nature that He is. We rejoice in Him. We confess that I can do nothing apart from Him. We confess all things are working together for good because of Him. The emphasis here of the Apostle is this. Those who believe on him shall not be confounded. Peter quotes from Isaiah 28 verse 16. He that believeth shall not make haste. The idea is the same. Those who believe will never be disappointed. Never be disappointed in the rock. And therefore will never flee from him in haste. Many are the sorrows and disappointments of this life. You know them and I know them. Christ is the rock in whom we find our comfort, in whom we find our sure, everlasting hope. The believer will never be ashamed. He'll be saved. He'll be triumphant as a result. All because of Christ, that cornerstone. You believe on Christ will never be cast off. Not now, not at death, not at judgment day, not to all eternity. And not even the gates of hell can prevail against you and against me. For of him and through him and unto him are all things. Yea, all things to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things thou hast done for us. Work in us the faith, the humility by which we might lay hold on Christ. Knowing and believing that He is the cornerstone of our lives, the cornerstone of the church, that He's the one out of whom we live and for whom we live. And may we show forth His praise all the days of our lives. We pray this for His sake. Amen.